Hello and welcome to Talking Capital. I'm Ian Barnard, CEO of CapGen, and I'm here with our Chief Investment Officer, Robert Sears, to answer three questions that have been posed to us by our clients and friends in recent weeks. For those who don't know us already, CapGen is a private investment office for families with capital. We are Go Anywhere Investors, so in the course of these episodes, you can expect us to cover any question across any asset class in any region of the world from bricks and mortar to portfolio derivatives. In summary, this is a podcast where we answer the questions playing on the minds of sophisticated long-term investors. Do subscribe if that sounds up your street and you'll enjoy two episodes a month of Talking Capital. So in our last conversation, Rob, we ended by talking about gold and its place in portfolios and what we can expect from it and what we uh, uh, might not be able to expect from it. Let's talk uh, today about oil because oil has found itself back in the headlines. There was the recent uh, announcement by OPEC that it was going to cut back production with the very explicit goal of um, stabilising or increasing prices. So, uh, so what does that mean? Um, uh, what, what, what does that hold f- uh, for inflation and therefore what we can expect uh, from central banks as they try to, uh, to slay this dragon? Yes, I think it's, it's one of these difficult uh, questions really is that a response like we're cutting the supply of oil, what does that mean for prices? What does it mean for growth and inflation? is the, the answer is not always the same. And you can argue it in both directions. So if we take an environment of pretty pretty good growth, if you start cutting the, the supply of oil, then you're likely to see higher oil prices, pressures on inflation, um, and arguably that's, that's the main focus. But in an environment actually where we're seeing falling growth and demand um, going down, all price cuts may be overwhelmed by that decline in in demand. So it, it may be a way to try and stem the, the decline in oil prices, but really it becomes a deflationary impulse because actually the higher oil prices means consumers who are already stretched have to divert their resources away from spending on services towards paying for oil and other um, commodities and goods that are linked to the oil price. So you could take it in either deflationary or inflationary um, way. And I think that's that's really quite important because it's too simplistic to sort of say, we're seeing a little cut in oil prices, we're going to have this massive spike in inflation. That's not necessarily the case. And I think arguably compared to last year to this year, uh, we are in a different environment. Last year, the main focus was all about inflation as the key threat um, to the global economy. This year, attention is turning more towards growth and the threat of recession. So the response, we, we've seen that uh, spike, short-term spike in prices, but I think the more the question, and, and undoubtedly we've removed some of the, um, the excess in supply over demand for this year, which will stabilise prices of, of oil, but the threat is more, what does that mean for spending? What does that mean for consumption in a, in a world where arguably recession is the bigger threat? 
And I think what was interesting in many ways was actually the oil price has been very weak. So since Russia invaded Ukraine and we had that spike in prices really since the middle of last year, prices have been declining. And they'd been sort of trading in a sideways rage until recently and started to decline further. And I suppose the question was really, well, what was behind that weakness, softness in pricing? And I think there are a couple of um, things we can look at. I think firstly, one of the, the brightest spots for this year was really China reopening. Is that suddenly going to be that surge of demand and growth for this year? But the reality is, as we we sort of thought, perhaps a lot of the demand in China is going to be more contained locally. And we haven't seen a big construction boom, which is more dependent on oil. So there's been less spillover to growth than the oil prices maybe expected. I think they, the sort of Russia, uh, Russian oil, they, there's been probably more of it reaching the, the market than maybe people anticipated. So again, there's been that extra um, supply um, that, than had been anticipated. And investors themselves, again, the attention from the last few weeks all became about financial stability, the shock to growth. And we saw quite a uh, contraction in sort of long positions in speculative positions in oil. So CTAs um, were becoming um, sort of reducing their net long positions in oil as the oil price started um, to reduce. So we were seeing um, speculative reduction in speculative pressure, reducing the price in oil down to $70 a barrel. And equally as well, one, one of the catalysts we'd seen earlier was the US had uh, used their oil reserves, strategic oil reserves, and had um, uh, we were waiting for them to replenish them. And they had said when the oil price got to between $67 to $72 a barrel, they were going to start buying, but that hadn't happened. So again, I think the context, what the OPEC's move, and really you can ignore the Russian part because that, that didn't really add new supply, but really probably about a, a million dollars of uh, a million barrels of oil a day coming back onto the the market was really all about putting a floor beneath that price and maybe in the the context of not being so concerned about the US reaction this time um and more concerned about China we're seeing within that geopolitical context in in Saudi Arabia um and that's really what we've seen in the price so far is just reverting back to this range um, and not really um, sort of accelerating higher. So yes, there is potentially a threat to inflation. It, it, it does give a bit more of an impulse, and certainly, surprisingly, short uh, inflation expectations often are tied quite closely uh, to the oil price. Um, so we, we, that that has some potential for um, ad adding to inflationary pressures. But overall, at the moment, the concern is far more about uh, growth. Um, and and the the chance of recession, and we see that equally when we're followed by some of the data in manufacturing again looks pretty weak. Now we there is this divergence between manufacturing and services sector, but whilst the focus is on recession and the the, the sort of deflationary threat from higher oil prices, I think we're going to see contained um, activity. What we need to to see for for the oil price increase to really be 
more damaging for inflation is actually uh, services inflation and wages to be relatively sticky. That would be more of a threat um, to sort of medium term inflation expectations. Yes. And I suppose, as we have seen, I guess, the last 20 years or so, there is this sort of curious interplay in the US between uh, oil prices and shale production uh, and this um, you know, we'll see how long it, it lasts, but this sort of boost to oil prices will in turn encourage uh, shale production in the US. Uh, there are lead times associated with that, so it's not a tap that you can quite turn on and off. Um, but there, you know, it'll be a boost to um, shale produced in the US, which will you know, then, then prompt a supply response. So, as you say, Robert, it's quite a it's quite a tricky one to. Uh, uh, untangle and separate out as a phenomenon itself. It sort of interplays with with lots of other things. I think the other reflection I would have is is we know again looking at the US that uh, oil prices or gas prices at the pump are obviously, as you say, a material impact on the actual cash in consumers' pockets. But they do also have a a, a sentiment uh, element, don't they, as well? Where if gas prices go up, it not only takes money from your pocket, but it also uh, uh, gives you a sort of sentiment um, uh, hit. And so if people were, as you say, minded to feel uh, uh, a bit more cautious, it might only reinforce that. Yes, I think on the, so, so I completely agree on the US uh, consumer aspect. I think the interesting thing about shale is whether we do see um, the re- response in supply. I think this is the gamble that uh, the OPEC are taking this time round is compared to um, that first boom of, of shale production. Whether it's now down to willingness or ability, actually we're seeing less of a response on the supply side from uh, the shale producers, certainly in the last uh, two or three years, that that elasticity has not been there. So I think this is the gamble they're taking, that w- for whatever reason, that there's be less response. And in this way, actually, they, they can put a floor, the OPEC can put a floor beneath prices without losing market share, um, which I think is probably a reasonable, uh, a reasonable assumption to make, uh, given the data of the last few years. So they think they can uh, stabilise their uh, fiscal balances uh, without losing too much market share in this type of environment, you touched on CTAs, Robert, in and their positioning in uh, in in oil futures, which, as we know, are uh, amongst the most well, really, <laughs> pretty much the only uh, truly large uh, commodities futures market when it comes to financial investors. And so, CTAs, you know, even aside financial futures, often have uh, uh, big positions in in oil futures. Uh, because it is so so large and so so liquid, and and as you say, the volatility around prices is not necessarily their friend. They they go into a position because momentum seems to be going a certain direction, and then boom, something um, uh, 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 comes from the side and knocks them sideways, and uh, means that they have to reposition their their portfolios. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about. Um, uh, hedge funds and and how they fared this year, and I think you know as we've talked about on this uh, discussion for now years, uh, we, we should always uh, uh, decompose hedge funds into the different strategies. Hedge funds are 
you know, a structure and a, and a fee arrangement um, uh, principally and what they actually then do with the money with which they're entrusted, the strategies they pursue is hugely varying. And so generalising about uh, uh, hedge funds is probably not helpful. So so if you could perhaps unpick that, Robert, talk about um, what were the, 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 the strategies to be in and not to be in so far this year, keeping in mind that um, some strategies had an absolutely um, fantastic uh, 2022 and others a not so exciting 2022. So how have the winners of last year done in the, um, what are we, the first three months of this year? Well, I think the short answer is there's been a bit of reversion um, to the mean in a way in that the winners of last year have, have struggled a bit this year and uh, and vice versa. Um, and if we unpick that a bit more, I think look, March was one of the worst months for uh, trend followers. So what we did see was this big trend reversal and and quite large volatility, but not really trending volatility. So when, when a trend breaks, that's the month when CTAs, even with short term uh, trends, typically suffer. And that's exactly what we saw. The, the, the concerns over financial stability, the banking system, suddenly reversed the, the concern of higher inflation and, and better growth that we had um, going into March. Um, so the volatility in the two year government bond was particularly um, extreme in many ways. Um, and even the direction we during the month we hit five percent on the two year by the end of the month we're we're back now around four percent so it's quite a big move in a short space of time so CTA certainly suffered having had a really good year last year um, and there were a couple of other trend breaks we talked about oil um, as well and I think the the bigger picture we should say is actually even since really the summer last year, sort of August to October period, a lot of markets are now trading quite range, uh, big ranges and are not um, not trending. So we've seen that with equities, these these counter trend sort of uh, bear market rallies, we're still terming them, but they, they've not broken out of a trend. So equities, the 10 years since the end of last year, the gold price, even there, we've we've had a spike. We're back up to to highs, but we're still within a range. So it feels like a lot of markets are um, are waiting to break out in 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 one direction or other. So again, not a great environment for for trend followers. So trend followers suffered. Macro um, managers who are taking more of a discretionary view, still they were on a lot of those same trades and so suffered from or certainly some of them suffered from the extreme moves we saw in in um, fixed income market um, so indeed some macro managers even sort of were down 20 25 percent out of business during the month of March so quite an extreme uh, period overall though yes it's a down period not not too extreme for a sort of diversified portfolio the areas that did a bit better and in general it's a sort of down month uh, were those that focused more on equities, uh, and in particular, actually, the the equities that are that are pulling up the um, the S and P five hundred and other equity markets. We've seen in tech, so those those managers with more exposure to tech. Clearly, it's been a better start to the year. Nasdaq up about uh, in in double digit percentage points. Most of the S&P return is just by the handful of large cap names. So certain equity managers, long short managers did well. Those with a value bias, again, suffered, having had a good year last year, suffering a bit um, at the start of this year. 
Um, so I think that was the overall picture. Within that, there are these pockets of opportunity, and we so some event-driven managers there have been um, good performances beneath the surface. Um, so there's still dispersion within managers, um, and there is more opportunity coming. But it is within this this sort of range-bound um, environment. So again, losers of last year, large cap tech names uh, and government bonds have actually done pretty well this year. So it's been a bit of a reversion uh, to mean so far. Now, I would say caution, short term performance um, is is pretty important uh, to, to compare because it is a pretty treacherous environment in many ways. I think we termed it before. You have an environment where it's difficult for poly- policymakers and investors with arguably the valuations on some of those large cap tech names, um, the US in aggregate is as expensive as at the end of the 20s, so expensive valuations. At the same time, we've got debt levels in the US and some other developed markets basically as high as they were at the end of the Second World War, so you have an overhang of debt problem. And you've still got this persistent inflation, uh, the highest inflation really since the 70s, so you have that um, additional problem. You've got financial stability concerns. So you have a number of problems all at once, which make it quite a treacherous and difficult environment. So in that range-bound environment, we're, we're waiting for that recession to come and to see whether that does actually then pull down uh, performance. Um, it's quite a difficult environment um, to, to, to make big bets in, in one direction, arguably you should be protecting against portfolios. So while it's been difficult for hedge funds so far this year, it doesn't mean the rest of the year is actually going to be um, a difficult environment. In, indeed, once we break out of this range um, and more difficult times ahead, actually that should be a pretty good environment uh, for hedge funds to do well. So in many ways, this is the calm before the storm. VIX back down below 20. It feels... Um, superficially in a, a reasonable environment, although a lot of that is buoyed by liquidity, while underneath there are those concerns about impending recession um, and uh, expensive valuations in certain areas of the market. Um, so I think it is, it's too short a time frame to make big picture conclusions on hedge funds, but you don't want just one, one piece. Actually, in a deflationary world, bonds will protect you pretty well alongside your hedge funds. And certainly, um, protecting your equity market now hedges a, a, a cheap way to to protect against that risk to the downside of recession. Well, let's zoom in, if we may, a little bit more on on portfolios at the moment, because uh, as we've discussed here, we have been uh, you know big users of of hedge funds, albeit varying strategies at different times over the years, and uh, in what was a pretty desultory. Uh, 2022 for your classic long-only uh, asset classes of equities and bonds, um, hedge funds, the right sort, you know, typically uh, macro or CTAs, uh, did extremely well. And, and if you selected well within those strategies that generally did well, you did even better. And so we had a pretty pretty happy uh, experience last year with hedge funds, and they were one of the the, the, the bright spots in portfolios. I wonder if you could talk, Robert, about how we're positioned now. Have we have we carried through, by and large, the uh, uh, sort of mix of strategies that we were holding in in twenty twenty two? An expectation, as you say, of of there being some break again, or or have you been making adjustments? 
I think more broadly within the hedge funds, yes, we've maintained the overall posture. We have added a bit of uh, equity longshore to market neutral as a replacement to equity. So I think that's the example. There are these divergences beneath the surface. This should be a stock picker's environment, and yet equity risk is still pretty expensive. So that's at the margins where we've been um, adding some exposure within hedge funds. But I think what we did do is we trimmed some of the hedge fund winners at the start of the year, and we have been trimming equity in the last month um, to add some of those other protections. So hedge funds are not the only answer. They do help alongside um, other assets, but we've been adding to gold, been adding to cash, been increasing our um, use of, of hedges directly on equity markets, um, and adding long duration bonds at the end of last year. And so those, those are the areas, having had no bonds last year, we've, we've added 30 year bonds for, for this year. Um, so I think you do want those other strings this year compared to last year where bonds were not an answer and being underweight gold. I think this year, gold, cash, hedge uh, and uh, bonds um, are the other strings you need alongside um, your hedge fund exposure. Um, and the good news or bad news is, is if and when markets do fall, then that will provide an environment to add equity risk. And that will be the moment when you reduce and sell down your hedge fund exposure. So we're anticipating and, and, and waiting for that environment. So although I think uh, now is the time for patience and to be ready and to have a number of arrows to protect um, uh, against that the future downturn. I think the the only counter I will give to that is, as we mentioned before, there is a risk. The risk that we do have this final boom period where rates are cut too early, and yet inflation is modestly contained, and we can have a spike in prices. Um, that's one real risk that remains. It's a relatively small probability, but that sort of boom in tech, fueled maybe by an AI craze, you could certainly envisage that. So that's another reason why it's not an environment to just sell everything and put everything in cash, because you don't want to be caught out. So I think maintaining that, although it's a lower probability, there is that chance of a, a sort of final um, uh, extreme boom in, in tech prices. Um, and NVIDIA is the classic example now. Is it going to break? I think it looks likely some of those tech names are going to break, but um, booms can go further than you think. And even if we take Microsoft, could be another bellwether. Um, if we see the P on Microsoft in an AI fuel boom go to 60, 70, 80 times, like a dot-com period, that's the type of environment where um, being overly cautious could, could again, um, be damaging for portfolios. So whilst we want to be patient and protect, I think that's the reason not to make a binary uh, view to just put all your money in cash and, and sit out uh, the markets at this point in time. Well, let's change direction. Hedge funds are almost by definition a complicated uh, asset class full of um, nuance and variety and um, and complication and and a certain um, uh, essentially ephemeral nature. They are, after all, pretty abstract. Let, let's turn to commercial real estate, which uh, is an important part of uh, many of our clients' uh, portfolios. It is an, an asset class that, that's accessible in the sense that um, it, it feels easy to understand, uh, and obviously it is it is the <laughs> it is the tangible asset class. You own commercial real estate, and you can, uh, or indeed residential real estate, you can go and see it and check it and and see that it's there. So I think that uh, for those reasons, it has always been a. a, a uh, an important part of how 
uh, our clients uh, think about their portfolios. So let's talk a bit about uh, London, which is obviously close to us, uh, but also uh, independently, it is a, a is it an important global market for real estate. And let's talk about um, the commercial sector. There's been uh, a bit of news about deal making activity. Um, you know, it looks as though it might be. Uh, as though we're beginning to see some investment interest return to London after what's been a been a quiet patch. What what do you make of that, Robert? Is that an opportunity, or, or is it is it actually a, a falling knife? What do you think about uh, London commercial real estate as an investment proposition right now? Well, I think commercial real estate at the moment is at the forefront of a lot of investors minds and i think for good reason it is it is going to be um an important uh example like asset class really of, of how deep this recession is going to be so i think definitely focusing on the area is important if we just take out some of the the headlines i think the uk um sort of investment picking up in commercial real estate in in q1 Yes, it did, which is which is a sign of, um, I suppose, some of the liquidity we've seen coming back into the market since since October last year. But we should say it's off a very low base. So it was a record low at the end of last year. Um, it's still the deal making in Q1 was about half the 10 year average. So we're still down a long way. Um, and a lot of that activity arguably is foreign, foreign investment coming in and is as much a currency play or a, a play for safe safe haven status rather than uh, really backing um, backing the sector. So I think commercial real estate clearly it's suffering from a, a combination of factors. One, we've got the big wave, the big impact of financing costs going up, which we're only just working our way through. The, the resetting of loans is an important element to, to what's happening. But then actually on the fundamental basis as well, certain sectors in particular, office, uh, are facing this, this big issue of occupancy levels being really low. So not just London, but actually a number of different um, cities around, around the world. So occupancy levels low, financing conditions going up, um, and general concern about banking sector uh, and uncertainty from investors is not a really um, a great backdrop. So I think that's that's the difficult environment. And what we've also seen is we've seen a big divergence between liquid markets and illiquid markets. I think you can see the REIT markets have already sold off a long way. And a lot of the, um, the commercial mortgage-backed securities are off a long way as well. So we've seen sell-off in some of the li more liquid uh, real estate markets showing the distress that's there. And we haven't seen that there hasn't been that catch up from the illiquid assets. So we need to wait, go through the, the debt maturity cycle and see some of these defaults to come. And that's where we have seen some of the pressure. So I think in the news, we saw um, Lloyd's was facing default from um, one real estate investor in, in Canary Wharf on a, on a couple of a couple of loans where the prices are, uh, are sort of 40 percent lower than where they traded in 2014. So that's an example of a sector which has these challenges um, uh, and arguably the pain is just beginning because we're just seeing those loans starting to default and we're seeing the forced sellers. So it could be a little bit early to catch that falling knife, particularly in areas which are structural, have structural um, changes which are, are causing a damage. So in the case of work from home and also the cyclical impact from, from a lot, lot of large employers starting 
um, to see the job cuts um, in the in the period ahead. So I think it is a bit early to 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 catch that falling life when prices have not reverted. And we can see another example in one of the the areas where we're seeing sort of liquidity given in a fake way to an illiquid asset class. The the Blackstone. Um, real estate uh, trust that's that's listed. There's a huge wave of demands every quarter now, far in exceeding uh, the supply that they can, that investors can come out. So we haven't had the repricing yet um, that that's needed really to 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 make a proper bottom to the market. Um, I think we're looking as an investment. I think the case is more that the first area to look would be real estate debt, and there actually. Um, if you're a distressed investor, picking up some of those loans is a way actually to to get quite cheap assets in the right if you pick um, strategically and successfully. So I think that's the area we're actually focusing on more broadly is we're looking to deploy in distressed credit. And one of the uh, areas of that potentially is, is real estate. So it's not something we even need to jump to yet, but it's something which is going to become an opportunity um, as we uh, come further down the line. I think also why people are concerned about uh, commercial real estate is what is that impact going to be on bank balance sheets, as we talked about last, last um, episode. Uh, we've seen the damage from rising rates, but that in a way isn't uh, doesn't create a negative feedback loop. Whereas actually, if you see some damage to commercial loans, commercial real estate loans, that in itself um, can cause a negative feedback loop. So the concern is there on regional banks. But I think the, the a key point to be made is commercial real estate, yes, it can be levered. Um, but actually, in the size of assets, it's far smaller than the residential uh, real estate market. So if we're saying where the contagion could come from, yes, it can cause concern and, and holes in certain bank balance sheets. But the real problem would be like a 2008 is if it if you see damage in the residential uh, real estate loan books. So I think that's that's more of a concern for contagion. But it, it is it is definitely a focus area for investors at the moment to the downside. Um, and the bargains, again, we said debt may come first, but equally also liquid real estate. So the REITs, there's, if you're going to catch the falling knife, the first area to look is where the prices have already um, declined the most. And, and we've seen some of that activity from Blackstone in the UK trying to pick up um, some REITs trading at, um, at lower prices. I think that's another area where you'd look to first. Uh, it's going to take some time before we see the, the transactions in the private market sort of, and the pricing um, catch up to, to where we are based on those negative fundamentals for financing and, and occupancy rates. Yes, I think a, a, a reflection, you've often talked, Robert, of the danger of uh, uh, chasing yield, of trying to find uh, assets that will, during the period when interest rates were so low, that would actually give you a, a positive yield when cash was, uh, in some cases, actually costing you money to... To hold, and one of the big themes and trends was uh, regional office uh, in the UK context. People uh, looking at, at regional cities and seeing a premium of, you know, maybe a hundred, maybe two hundred basis points of uh, at yield uh, compared to what they were getting in London, and that would seem attractive. But I think what we've seen, Robert, isn't it? Is if liquidity has. Um, has diminished somewhat in London, it's completely disappeared in some regional cities. In some cases, it's just really, really hard to get a bid for uh, for any assets. 
indeed. And I think that's the, that's the point. The tightening financial conditions from banks, the tightening credit conditions, are going to cause this decline in demand, and it's it's causing problems of of financing assets. So uh, there's there's further for that to go, and that's that's the point about not jumping to catch the falling knife too soon. There's more damage to come. Conditions are only just tightening up in uh, from banks at the moment, um, but there will be a big opportunity. Um, but the opportunity is not to search for yield or or buy lower quality assets. The opportunity will actually be to pick up high quality assets that you can pick up from from distressed sellers. I think is the first another area to focus on really. Robert, great. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for joining us. And if you enjoyed today's discussion, uh, please do subscribe to the podcast. Bye for now. Thank you.